All right, we'll make your way to the book of Colossians, if you will. Colossians chapter 1 is where we're going to be together this morning as we continue in our series through this wonderful New Testament book. Can we thank our choir and worship team and orchestra for leading us so well this morning? Just so thankful for all they do to lead us week in and week out. And uh, while you're turning to Colossians, let me take a moment and just tell you, uh, somebody asked me the other day, they said, hey, pastor, you've been here for a few weeks. How are you liking it? Do you enjoy East Texas? Are you enjoying Moberly? And I just want you to know, uh, Amy and I and our family have so enjoyed uh, being here in East Texas and being with you. And it has been just such a joy already to be your pastor. And y'all are just easy to love. We feel your love in return. And we just want you to know how thankful we are to be here as a family and to, to be part of this church family. You know, I love to fly, and one, um, really my two favorite parts of flying are uh, takeoff and landing. And I enjoy uh, takeoff, it's just the rush, you know, you, you uh, uh, launch out there on the runway and you, you start going higher and higher and everything that was so large becomes really small as you're just flying along at 30,000 feet. And then as you uh, land, you know, everything that was so tiny from a 30,000 foot view just begins to get bigger and bigger the closer that you, you get uh, to the ground. And in Colossians chapter one, the apostle Paul really has been flying at 30,000 feet, giving us a big picture of who Jesus uh, is. That's what Colossians is all about. And in Colossians chapter one, he gives us this big statement that Jesus is Lord. That means that Jesus is, uh, he is king. He is on the throne. He is, uh, as one of my friends puts it, he is large and in charge. Amen. He is Lord. And and Paul has been giving us, giving us these great big cosmic realities about Jesus' lordship. So he tells us, for instance, that Jesus is Lord over creation, that all things were made through him and all things were made for him and all things are sustained by him. And he's also not just Lord of creation, but he's Lord of the church, right? We're talking about the global universal church, 2,000 years of church history, Jesus' ruler over all. And not just Lord of the church, but he's also Lord of the cross. And so in verses 21 through 23 of chapter 1, Paul is talking and just reflecting on kind of the cosmic reality of the cross of Jesus, that in the cross, God is reconciling the world to himself, that those who are far from him are brought near through the work of Jesus on the cross, okay? All of that is very big 30,000-foot truth. Now, in the last paragraph of chapter 1, Paul is going to begin to land, and as he begins to land, uh, those big cosmic truths become very large in his own life as he zooms in and talks about how these cosmic realities about who Jesus is, what a difference that makes in his own life. And, and so that's really what the last paragraph of chapter one is all about. It's how the lordship of Jesus makes a difference in my life. That there actually is a difference that it makes in my day-to-day -day walk because Jesus is on the throne. And so we're going to see in this last paragraph, not just that Jesus is Lord of creation and Jesus is Lord of the church and Jesus is Lord of the cross, but we're going to see what it means for Jesus to be Lord of the Christian. And there is some great truth in the text that I want to share with you this morning. In fact, there's so much here that I'm going to actually look at this paragraph this week and I'm going to come back to it again next week, okay? And so I want to just walk through this text and, and begin to show you the implications of the lordship of Jesus for our, for our lives. That's what Paul is talking about. What difference does it make that Jesus is Lord for my life and my, uh, my ministry? 
And so let's look at the text together. And I want to actually pick up where we left off last week. You know, every time when you're walking through God's Word, there's so much to talk about. And I left something on the cutting room floor last week that I want to pick up this week, okay? So we're going to look at beginning in verse 22. And I want to share with you... uh, uh, the, the difference that Jesus as Lord will make in your life. Look at what verse 22 says. It says, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Let me just stop right there and recap from last week. What this means is, is that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if Jesus is Lord and Savior of your life, then one day when you stand before God your maker, right, which every single person will do. One day, every single person will die, right? That's the ultimate statistic. 10 out of 10 people die. You will die. You will stand before God, your creator, and give an account for your life. The Bible tells us if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, that when God the Father looks at you in your life, he will not see your sin and your failure and your mistakes if you are in Christ, Instead, if you are in Christ, he will look at someone who is holy and faultless and blameless. In other words, if you turn your life over to the Lord and he becomes the Lord of your life, God no longer sees you in all of the ways that you have failed. Instead, he looks at you and sees nothing short of the righteousness of his very own son. And here's what that means. What that means is if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, here's some good truth for you today. God is as pleased with you as he can possibly be because you are in his son, Christ. And he sees you as spotless and blameless, just like Jesus. Not because of your own blamelessness, not because of your own sinlessness. None of us are sinless. We are all sinful but because of the righteousness of God's son, Jesus, and his righteousness covers over our sin. Now that is a great big gospel truth, isn't it? So that's what he says in verse 22. But then he says something in verse 23 that's, that's important. He says, this is what Jesus will do. He will present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So I don't know how you read that, but I read that as a very big if, right? That, that two-letter word right there, if. It almost sounds like a threat. This is what God will do for you, but you better not mess up or else he won't do it for you. He'll only do this for you if you meet certain conditions, namely being grounded and steadfast and unshifting. Is that what the text is talking about? Well, actually, I don't think that that is what Paul is saying at all. I don't think that verse 23 is meant as a threat, but as an assurance. Paul is not saying here that your salvation is dependent on you remaining grounded and steadfast and and unshifting from the gospel. That would make it sound like our salvation is dependent upon our faithfulness. But we know that our salvation is not dependent on our faithfulness, but Christ's faithfulness, right? We are saved. Here's a trick question for you. Right? Are, are we saved by works, true or false? I told you it was a trick question, though. I would argue we are saved by works, but not our work. We're saved by the work of Jesus for us. Amen? 
So this is not telling us that we're saved by our works. That, in other words, you have to work really hard at being grounded and faithful and, and unmoving, and then God will present you holy, faultless, and blameless. No, this is where our English translations make it a little difficult for us. In verse 23, that little word if, it is a conditional clause, but there's different kinds of conditional clauses in the Greek New Testament. This is one that's called a first-class conditional clause. Let me just tell you what that means. It means it's a statement that is assumed to be true. In other words, if you were going to translate this, I think, a little bit more accurately or a little more faithfully, what you, Paul would be saying is, God will present you holy, faultless, and blameless, provided and assuming that you will continue on with the gospel. In other words, what Paul is saying is, assuming that you stick with Jesus, <laughs> this is what Jesus will do for you. It's not meant as a threat. It's not to undermine the security of your salvation. It's actually to strengthen the, the security of your salvation. He's saying, listen, assuming that you continue with Jesus, God will indeed present you holy, faultless, and blameless. It's kind of like if I say to my son, Austin, Austin, as long as you're my son, I'll love you. Now, there's no time in which he won't be my son. He'll always be my son, so of course I'll always love him. That's all that Paul is saying here. Assuming that you remain with the gospel, God will indeed present you holy, faultless, and blameless. And so he's just simply saying as long as you actually trust in Christ, this is what Christ will do. All Paul is expressing here is a doctrine that Baptists call the perseverance of the saints. We say it this way in Baptist life, once saved, always saved. What that means is everyone who truly knows the Lord will be grounded and steadfast and unshifting. They will persevere in faith in, until the end. That doesn't mean that you won't stumble or fall or even backslide, but it just means that you will hold fast to the confession of your faith. And if you don't fall away from that confession, that's not a sign. Listen, if you, if you are uh, holding fast to Christ, here's the truth. If you really know the Lord, you will continue with the gospel. You will continue with Jesus, faithful to the end. That's the perseverance of the saints. But there's a sister doctrine that is equally important. It's called the preservation of the saints. And the preservation of the saints says that the reason that you continue in the gospel till the end is because God is the one who is actually preserving you in faith. God is the one who is getting you there. In other words, you're not persevering out of your own sort of self-resources or self-righteousness. You are going to persevere in faith all the way to the end because God is the one who is doing that work in you. God, in other words, will both save and keep you. Aren't you thankful for that? He will both rescue you and hold on to you. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 when he says, he who began a good work in you will see it through to what? To completion, right? God will save and keep and he will present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. And that's not because of your effort and your work, but because of God's work in you. In fact, Paul says this very thing at the very last verse of Colossians chapter 1. If you look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 29, Paul says, I labor for this, striving with, what does it say right there? His strength that works powerfully in me. You see, Paul understood that the reason that you can continue grounded and steadfast and, and not shifting away from the gospel is not because you're some kind of super Christian, but because God is working in you. And those he saves, he will keep. Those he rescues, he will hold on to. And God will leave no Christian behind. You can have assurance 
in your salvation, and I'm thankful for that. Listen, someone has said it is not great faith in God that matters, but faith in a great God. In other words, it's not about the strength of your faith, it's about the strength of the one in whom you have faith that will see you through to the finish line. So the first implication of this text is this, if Jesus is Lord, you acknowledge that Jesus will get you to the finish line of your faith. If Jesus is Lord of your life, he will get you to the finish line of your faith. He will not only save you, he will preserve you in faith till the end and will present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. You don't have to worry about losing your salvation if you know Christ as Lord. Amen? I'm thankful for that because so many days, listen, if my relationship with God were dependent on the strength of my faith, I'd be without hope. Because sometimes my faith is shaky. Sometimes my faith is weak. But, but here's the deal. The object of my faith is always strong. Which means that even in a moment, if I wake up on Monday and I'm, I'm struggling with some doubt, I'm wrestling with my faith, I can have assurance of my salvation because the object of my faith is strong. And the reality is, even though I am called to hold on to him, I do that with the assurance that he's holding on to me. If you pick up your kids and maybe you have a toddler, two or three years old, and you grab her by the hands and you start swinging her around, you'll say, hold on tight, right? That's what Paul is saying here, hold on tight. But we know that we're really, who's doing the holding, right? In that moment, you tell your kid to hold on tight, but you're holding on tight to them. And the reality in the Christian life is this, we are called to hold on tight to him, but we do it with the assurance that he is holding on tight to us. And he will see us through to the finish line of our faith. He will leave no one behind. Amy and I uh, lived in West Texas for that area for over a decade. In West Texas, you have to water your yard every day or else it will turn into the dust bowl. Um, That's just what happens. That grass will dry up and die. And I was watering our grass one day uh, and uh, there was this, I was really just watering the dirt in in actuality (laughs) and um, had the water hose there and it turned on the, the spigot and by the time the water actually got to the, the end of the water hose, it was, there was no pressure. It was just like dribbling out. And so I was trying to figure out, is there a kink in the water hose or what's going on? And I looked at the water hose and I realized that our dog had chewed a bunch of different holes in the hose, all the way along the hose. And so by the time the water came from the spigot to the spout, there wasn't any water left because it had all kind of dribbled out along the way. And some people think of God that way. They think, you know, he can save, but somewhere along the way, there are going to be people who kind of dribble out, people who kind of fall through the cracks, people that he kind of leaves behind. But here's the deal. If you know Jesus is Lord, he'll get you to the finish line of your faith, and he will leave no one behind. He will present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him, provided and assuming that you're going to continue with him. Amen? All right, that's the first truth of uh, of, of the text that we see here. This, this uh, verse 24, I want you to look and see the second implication. When Jesus is Lord, Paul is gonna say, look, here's the difference it makes for my life. Not only do I know he's gonna see me through to the finish line of my faith, but here's the second thing. Jesus will give you joy when life is difficult. If you know Jesus is Lord, Paul says, the difference that makes in my life is that it gives me joy when life is difficult. Look what he says in verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my, say it with me, sufferings. Okay, let's just stop right there. That is a weird statement to make. It's an oxymoron, right? It's backwards, it's upside down. How can you rejoice in suffering? Paul says that is true of him. In fact, the word that he uses here is to be cheerful. 
Uh, literally, Paul is saying, in the midst of my sufferings, I find myself being cheerful. That's an amazing statement. Now, let's just think about that word suffering for a moment. How was Paul suffering? Well, we know that Paul suffered a lot, right? After God changed his life, called him into ministry, he was often arrested, he was often beaten, he was shipwrecked number of, a number of times, he was often abandoned by people he thought were close to him. He suffered in all kinds of ways. How can you have joy in that? And, and Paul, just to make it clear, he wants to make sure you understand that he is, he is rejoicing in his present circumstances. Notice verse 24, the word now. Paul is saying, in this moment, right now, I am rejoicing. I am being cheerful even in the midst of my present sufferings. Does anybody happen to know where Paul was when he was writing the letter to the church at Colossae? Just shout it out to me. Prison. That's right. And by the way, Roman prison is not like prison today where you have air conditioning and, you know, you, you can work out and get jacked all day and watch a big screen TV and stuff like that. This is, Roman prison is where you go to die it is where you suffer. It is where you wait to be put on trial and often executed. Roman prison is no walk in the park. And Paul is saying, even now, in that kind of situation, I am rejoicing. Well, how could Paul say something like that? I would suggest that the reason that Paul can be cheerful in the midst of his suffering is because Jesus is still Lord even when you're suffering. Jesus understood this cosmic reality that Jesus is Lord of all things. He's Lord of creation. And if he's Lord over all things, then he's still Lord when I am hurting. If he is on the throne, then he is still on the throne when I am going through the difficult moments of my life. He hasn't stepped off the throne. He's still ruling. He's still reigning. He is still large and in charge, even when my life is difficult. And it was that understanding, it was Paul connecting this big truth to his life that made a difference for how he faced suffering. He said, I, I can face my suffering, my difficulty differently because of this great big truth that Jesus is Lord, because he's in charge and he is sovereign even over bad things then when I go through suffering, it causes me to have joy. You see, Paul understood that the God of the mountain is still God over the valley. That the God in the good times is still God in the suffering times. That God doesn't get off the throne just because life gets difficult. And here's the deal. God does not waste our suffering. He wastes nothing. In fact, he redeems our suffering. God can use sovereignly, and you say, Pastor, how does that work? I don't know. It's above my pay grade. I don't understand all of that. How could God use a, a tragic event in my life? I don't understand all of that. I don't understand how all of that works. All I know is that God does that. And I believe in faith that God redeems suffering, that if you're walking through something hard, it is not for nothing, that there is purpose even in the midst of pain because Jesus is sovereign because he is Lord and he's on the throne. And so Paul says, knowing this about Jesus changes the way I go through suffering. It gives me joy in the midst of difficulty. Paul also understood that his suffering was doing something. It was accomplishing something. Look at what he says about his suffering in verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you. Paul understood in some way that his suffering in prison was for the, the believers in Colossae. 
Now, how are those two things related? Well, I don't know. Maybe Paul is just simply saying, because I'm willing to suffer, you were able to hear the gospel. And because my suffering enabled you to hear the gospel, my suffering's actually for you, and I can rejoice because you got to hear about Jesus because I suffered well. Right? Didn't, don't you know it was Paul's uh, practice when he was put into prison to talk to people about Jesus while he was there? It's like a captive audience, you know? Paul would be chained to these prisoners. Paul says in Philippians that the entire Praetorian guard got to hear the gospel because he was in prison. It was a captive audience. Just think about it. Can you imagine being chained to the Apostle Paul for six hours? And he's like, hey, man, this is an opportunity. We're going to talk about Jesus. And there's nowhere where they can go. It's like sharing the gospel on an airplane, you know? Start talking about somebody about Jesus and they don't want to talk about it. It's like, fine, leave, you know? Where are you going to go? <laughs> Paul had a captive audience. And so he's just sharing the gospel everywhere he goes. And the gospel begins to spread in unique ways. It even goes to a member of Caesar's household. Think about that. The emperor of Rome, one of the members of his household, gets saved because of Paul's faithfulness and witness. And so he's saying, listen, I rejoice in suffering because I realize my suffering is for you. It's doing something for you. Think about that. Maybe the way we suffer will actually open up a door for gospel witness. If we suffer faithfully, if we suffer as a believer in a way that we still, we, we testify to the world, we still believe God is in charge and we can trust him. Maybe that will open up a door for gospel witness. Paul says, I rejoice because I realize my suffering is for you. But then he goes beyond that and he says something that's kind of an unusual statement. Not only did he view his suffering as accomplishing something for the church at Colossae, but he also viewed his suffering as accomplishing something for Jesus. Look what he says in verse 24. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body. That is the, the church. Now, that is a troubling statement, all right? That'll get theologians scratching their heads. What exactly is lacking in Christ's affliction? I mean, we would say as believers, the work of Christ is complete, amen? It's, it's finished. Jesus said that about his own death. It is finished, right? So what is lacking in Christ's affliction? Paul says, my suffering is filling up what is lacking. Here's what I would argue or suggest. The only thing, the only thing that is lacking in the affliction of Christ is fame and renown. That's the only thing that is lacking. It's that there are some people who don't yet know about it. That's the only thing lacking in Christ's affliction, fame and renown. And I think what Paul is saying here is by his faithful suffering, more and more people were coming to know the fame and the renown of Jesus Christ. In other words, he saw his suffering as an opportunity for Christ to be made more widely known. And folks, I think that can transform the way that we think about difficulty in our life. Because so often it's, it's easy when you go through something hard, right? And it, it seems like it's never just one thing. It's always like, when it rains, it pours. Can I get a witness? Like, when you go through something tough, it's never just one thing at a time. It's like, you know, that happens, and then my car breaks, and the refrigerator won't work, and I got that bad diagnosis on my health, and it's just like all happening at once. And so it's so easy to kind of become closed in and focus on self. But what if instead we said, how is God going to make his name more renowned through how I walk through this difficult path? How could God become more famous through the way that I handle my suffering? 
Now, all of a sudden, that transforms the way you think about difficulty. Now you're looking, for instance, as to how you can point to God's glory, how you can point others to God's goodness, even in the midst of difficulty. And now there is something redemptive happening in your suffering. I have seen it time and time again with those who have gone through cancer. And the way that they walk through their cancer as a believer is a witness to everyone who sees their life. They're walking through suffering in a different way. I've seen this in how Christians have handled funerals. As a pastor, I've done a lot of funerals over the years, and there's a marked difference between a funeral for an unbeliever and a funeral for a believer. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, we grieve, but not as those who don't have hope. In other words, there's a different kind of grief that happens at a Christian funeral. And I've seen families walk through grief faithfully in a way that those who watch them see God's glory displayed. What would it look like to take your difficulty and your suffering and to walk through that in such a way that people look at God and say, he's great? What would it look like to have something happen in your life that is so difficult and yet you walk faithfully through that and you are pointing people to him all the way? Paul is saying, that is why I can rejoice when I suffer. It's not that you're rejoicing because you're suffering. It's that you're rejoicing even in the midst of your suffering because you understand that your suffering is accomplishing something. It is pointing people to the difference that God makes in your life. It is pointing to his fame and his renown. It is being a witness for the gospel, how you suffer faithfully. Isn't this what Paul says in in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4 and verse 17? You're familiar with this verse. Listen to what Paul says. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable, eternal weight of glory. Just think about the contrast in terms right there. Suffering is momentary. Glory is eternal. Suffering is light. Glory is weighty. He's saying, today, we are going through something light and momentary, but it is producing for us something that is weighty, it is heavy, and it is eternal. And Paul understood that God is using our suffering to produce an eternal weight of glory. It is producing something. God doesn't waste your pain, amen? And suffering and affliction can actually produce something in you, for you, and through you for others that nothing else can bring, right? Did you know that... um, the, the very best quality coffee beans are actually grown in the harshest conditions. The higher altitude that a coffee plant uh, grows coffee beans, the sweeter the bean. Isn't that interesting? The more, in other words, the more pressure that, that, that is put on that coffee bean, it produces something sweeter. And that's how suffering works in our life. We, we are put under pressure. We are experiencing the pressures of this life and the suffering and the difficulty of this life, but it produces a joy in Christ. And that is the difference that Christ can make when he is Lord of your life. Amen? All right. So that's the second implication. When Jesus is Lord, look, number one, he gets you to the finish line of your faith. Number two, he gives you joy when life is difficult. But here's the third thing that Paul is going to say as he's thinking about the implications of Jesus' lordship for his own life. In verses 25 through 29, Paul is going to say this, that when Jesus is Lord, he entrusts you with a people to serve and a message to proclaim. When Jesus is Lord, he entrusts you with a people to serve 
and a message to proclaim. Let's look at the text together. Look in, in verse, uh, verse 25. He says, I have become its servant. It's being a reference to the church. He says in verse 24, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's affliction for his body. That is the church. And then he says in verse 25, I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Now, there's a lot in these few verses, and so we're going to have to talk about a lot of this next Sunday, okay? We're going to come back to this paragraph next Sunday and pick up and look at this. But I just want to point out a couple of things here that Paul is saying about his life. He's saying, because Jesus is Lord, I've been entrusted with a people to serve and a message to proclaim. Notice the repetition of the word servant. If you see in verse 23, he talks about being a servant of the gospel, And then in verse 25, he talks about being a servant of the church. You see, Jesus transforms not only the way that we view our suffering, but he also transforms the way we view our serving. And here in verse 25, Paul is saying, not only am I redeemed and saved and transformed by Jesus, but God has given me a commission to be a servant. Paul understood that when you come to faith in Jesus, First of all, you get saved from your sin, but that's not all that happens. It's not just that you, you get a, a, you know, that get out of hell free card and you're just waiting for the rapture bus. That's not what happens. You are saved, but then you are sent and you are sent in order to serve. Paul understood that. Paul understood, look, he used to be a, a persecutor of the church And then God one day met him on the Damascus road and radically changed his life. But then he did more than just rescue him. He gave him a purpose. And that's exactly what happens when you come to know Jesus as well. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, let me just tell you really good news. Number one, God wants to rescue you from your sin. That's good news. Amen. But not only does God rescue you from your sin, he wants to use you. And it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or where you've been, God wants to use you and he gives you a brand new identity as a servant. That's how Paul understood himself. He understood I'm saved, but I'm also sent and I'm sent to serve. He understood himself as a servant of the church. We understand that to be a servant, um, you know, in this world, in our culture, that is something that you don't want. Right? Our culture is all about making it to the top, run over whoever you need to run over in order to get there, objectify people. You, you, you live your whole life in order to be, to be served. And, and we have kind of a consumer mentality sometimes in our culture. It's all about me and being served. But Jesus turns that upside down. Jesus says when you really understand what it, what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom, you realize, right, even Jesus himself said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And Jesus turns everything upside down. So Jesus says weird things like this, uh, to be first is actually to be last. And the greatest should be the servant. And, and that's what Jesus does when, when he saves us. He, he entrusts us with a people to Serve And so everything about our life as believers ought to be, how can I serve others? 
Not how can I be served, but how can I serve? And that should be the way, by the way, that we approach life in the church. It's easy to come to a place like Moberly and say, how can this church meet my needs? The question should be, how can I meet someone else's need? The question is not what can the church do for me, but what can I do for others? That's what it means to be entrusted with a people to serve. We even have this, when we talk about our strategy as a church, right, our goal as a church is to help you have a life-changing, ever-growing relationship with Christ. And we do that by helping you to worship, connect, and serve. We want you to gather for worship every single week so you can hear God's word taught, so you can glorify him and worship. We want you to connect with other believers in community, doing discipleship in the, in the context of community. And we want you to serve. That means we want you to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. Christian maturity is not ever really going to happen as long as you are just consuming. Amen? Christian maturity is not just going to happen if you're sitting and soaking. You've got to stand and serve. You can't just consume, you've got to contribute. And you won't really grow those roots deep until you move from a consumer to someone who is a servant of others. That's why we're giving you an opportunity in the month of November to be part of Serve Month, right? You saw that video commercial uh, (laughs) a few minutes ago. Serve Month, all the month of November, we're encouraging you with your community group, with your, your connect group, uh, or if just your family, or if you're an individual, single, you can, you can go into the lobby of the bridge, and there are all kinds of serve projects that are available uh, for you to take and to take responsibility for in the month of November. Why would we do that? Because Jesus has entrusted us with a people to serve. To be a follower of Jesus means to be a servant of others. And so we're encouraging you to serve in practical ways, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, just like Paul was. He says, I am a servant of the gospel. Let me give you one other opportunity to serve, and that is in our children's ministry. Right now, we have an opportunity for about 20 of you to serve those who Jesus says the kingdom is made up of such as these, our children. I think children's leaders are the, it's the most important job in the church, amen? Because Jesus puts a particular priority on serving those who can't give something to you back. And so that's why it matters to serve the poor and the widows and the orphans and children because you are serving not to get something in return. You're just serving because you love Jesus. And we have an opportunity. You know that it takes 200 leaders to serve our children here at Moberly. Isn't that amazing? 200 leaders. And so would you pray and ask if the Lord maybe wants you to serve in that ministry area? Not asking for a commitment. Because if I ask you, will you serve in children's ministry, you'll, you'll come up with all kinds of excuses. But would you pray about it? If you'll talk to God about it, you'd be amazed at how God can move on your heart. Just say, God, is this some, an area that you would want me to serve? And be open to him about it, right? We understand that if Jesus is Lord, then he trusts us with a people to serve. There's one final thing here in the text Not only does Jesus entrust you with a people to serve, he also entrusts you with a message to proclaim. You see Paul talk about that all through verses 25 through 29. He says, God's given me a commission to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery. What is the mystery? Look at the text right there in verse 27, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Isn't that a wonderful word? 
Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul is saying, God, because he is Lord, he has entrusted me with this glorious message, Christ in you, the hope of glory. When I think about that statement, I think about Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, which says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here's the deal. When you, when you have Christ in you, you don't fall short of the glory of God. You have the hope of glory. That's that glorious message that Paul was entrusted to proclaim. He's saying we, God has given us this amazing, glorious message that Christ can be in you, this cosmic Christ. This Christ through whom all things were made. This Christ who, for whom all things were made. This Christ who is Lord of creation and Lord of the church and Lord of the cross. That Christ can be in you, which is the hope of glory. That's a glorious message. And Paul says he has given me a commission to make that widely known. What that teaches us is that if Jesus is Lord, listen, there are some wonderful truths about that. He'll get us to the finish line in our faith. He'll give us joy when life is difficult. He entrusts us with a, a people to serve. He gives us a new identity as a, a servant. But he also entrusts us with a message that is so beautiful and so glorious that we can't help but to proclaim it. We understand this message about Christ being in us that gives us the hope of glory changes everything and we can't help but to shout and to sing and to proclaim it. My, my family and I, we went to uh, Tyler State Park on Friday and had a little family getaway. Did you know that there are snakes in Tyler State Park? I didn't know that, but I know it now. We saw three snakes in about two hours. And one of them was fine. It was just kind of sunbathing, you know, just kind of laying there, looked fairly sleepy, no problem. The second snake, not so much. I was uh, walking on this log. The log was laid over this little ravine, and uh, I'm going to show the kids how to be brave. So dad gets out there on the log, and I'm walking across and just kind of minding my own business. When I get to the end of the log, and there's this burnt out old stump right there. And on the other side of that stump, as I step off the log, I step onto this snake that I didn't know was there. And I went up about three octaves. I mean, I just did, ah! I started screaming, I was very manly. My kids had a great memory of their dad being so brave. <clears throat> that's right, Brooklyn, that's exactly what it sounded like. And then, by the way, it happened about five minutes later on the path, same thing, <clears throat> Spoken tongues there for a minute. <laughs> but, Here's the, here's the thing. All right, there's a point to this. All right, let me, let, me, let me remember where I was going with this. Here's the point. When you see something that you didn't see before, sometimes you can't help but shout. Amen? And here's the reality. In my life, before I knew Jesus, I was just kind of walking along, minding my own business. But then I saw something that was there the whole time, but I had never seen before. And now I can't help but to shout and to sing and to proclaim it. Amen? And when Jesus is Lord, you understand he has entrusted you not only with a people to serve, but a message to proclaim. Who could you proclaim the message to this week? Who could God bring across your path this week? Maybe it's a friend or a family member. Maybe it's a coworker or a neighbor who needs Jesus. We got to celebrate new life this morning with baptism. But there are others in our community who are walking in darkness. They have fallen short of the glory of God, and they need to hear the good news about Christ in you, the hope of glory. They need to hear the good news that God can not only rescue you, but use you. 
Some people feel like they have no purpose in life. They need to hear the good news that God can rescue them and use them as a servant. And God is calling you and me to be the ones who share that good news with the people around us. Amen? I'm going to invite you to stand this morning. And if you're here today and you know Jesus as Lord, there are so many implications for our life. But if you're here today and you don't yet know Jesus as Lord, I want to invite you to know him in that way. After the service, in just a moment, we're going to sing a song. And then right after the service, there are folks out in the lobby who are decision prayer partners. They're wearing little badges so you can identify them. And they would love to sit down with you today to talk about what it means for Jesus to be large and in charge, what it looks like to live the with God life. And I hope that you would take that step today. If you're here today and you know Jesus is Lord, then folks, just trust God is gonna get you to the finish line in your faith. God can give you joy in your difficulty and God has given you a people to serve and a message to proclaim. So let's be faithful to proclaim it. Father, we are so thankful for your word. Thank you for how it teaches, encourages, instructs us. Thank you for the rich truth that we find in your word. Lord, I pray for every one of us who is a believer today in Christ. Lord, I don't know exactly how your spirit will use your word, but I know you know how. So I pray that you would just drive the truth of scripture deep into our hearts today. Help us to believe it and trust and have hope. Lord, if there's somebody here today who doesn't know Jesus as Savior, I pray that today would be the day that they turn from their sin and put their trust in Christ, his work on the cross and resurrection for them. Lord, we're so thankful for who you are. We're thankful for this glorious message that we have to proclaim. So help us to proclaim it well. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.